When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Deep Water Horizon. Give me those eyes. <laughs> Daddy, you need to give me a fossil. I will. I want to be able to hold it up and say my daddy tames the dinosaurs. We are big company. Millions of moving parts. Hey, how you doing, man? We all work very hard to ensure those moving parts are functioning as a means to very profitable end for all of us. Have it a smoke? <laughs> hey, come close to the computer. Give me those eyes. No! That is a genuine dinosaur tooth. She's gonna flip out. Are you seeing this? Everybody off Mike, what is that? Is everything okay? We gotta go right now! Okay, everybody. That was the trailer for Deep Water Horizon. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. And the story for Deepwater Horizon is as follows. Based on the true events that occurred on an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico on April 20th, 2010, the story chronicles the courage of those who worked on the Deepwater Horizon and the extreme moments of bravery and survival in the face of what would become one of the biggest man-made disasters in world history. The film stars Mark Wahlberg, Kurt Russell, John Malkovich, Gina Rodriguez, Dylan O'Brien, and Kate Hudson. With me for this review today, I've got my pal Will Mavity. Will, what's up, man? Not much, man. Glad I saw the movie. Alrighty, absolutely. That sounds like a good prelude of things to come for this review. And joining us uh, today on the podcast is a guest. We've got Alice Bishop. Alice, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing pretty fantastic this morning. I know for you over there right now, it's the afternoon. Um, Why don't you kindly tell our dear listeners out there where you're from and uh, who you write for. Tell us about, uh, you know, tell us about you. Okay, well, uh, yep, I'm I'm from the UK. I currently live in Scotland, but I'm originally from the Midlands. um, So yeah, like England area. Um, And I'm a full-time freelance journalist, so... I uh, I specialize in film writing. Uh, I work for a website called Viewer Reviews, um, which is kind of um, it connects people who have similar tastes in films, and I I write uh, articles and reviews on there. And um, I do a variety of other freelance jobs um, via a, a freelancing website, uh, all sorts of bits and pieces, basically, uh, whether it's like research or film trivia questions, um, articles, lists, things like that. Um, And yeah, that's pretty much all I do. Well, I'm a very, very big fan of lists. And with that said, we're actually going to be, after our review here, counting down our top three favorite disaster films based on real-world events. So why don't we start it off with you first? Let's just dive right into the review here and get into Deepwater Horizon. Alice, what did you think of the movie overall? Well, uh, 
I was pretty surprised by how much I liked it, actually. Uh, I wouldn't say that uh, disaster films are always my thing, but I think when it's a real-life event like this, I feel like it's a different atmosphere, especially seeing it here um, in Aberdeen, because um, there's a huge... Uh, like, the oil industry is a huge part of this region in Scotland. You know, there's, like, uh, tons and tons of people that work in the oil industry here. And I saw it in, like, a, a packed cinema. Uh, and the the atmosphere was just one of, like, understanding, almost like a, a deep respect for all those people involved in the tragic incident that occurred. Um, you know, it was like, almost like silence from people. And um, the moment that the disaster strikes, you can just feel, like, the way that the people in the cinema, like, it, it resonates with them. And I think that is a big part why I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but I also just liked the way it was set up, you know, like how the uh, the character development was so... Like it was it was strong. I mean, like, a good half of the film is decent character development before, you know, it goes all out with the big special effects. Um, and I, I just... I love what they did with the set, you know, how they um, essentially recreated this huge uh, drilling rig um, and just the way it played out it's like I, I felt it you know like rattling through my bones it was crazy uh, but I enjoyed it a lot yeah well that's really really good to hear Will what were your thoughts on the film here I would say I have never been a big fan of Peter Berg uh, Friday Night's Light Friday Night Lights aside and did not expect to like this at all, which is why I was absolutely shocked that I did. Um, I would say I personally wish we had had a little more character development on the front end, because though I liked what they did with Kurt Russell and Mark Wahlberg's characters, we didn't really get much about anyone else. And I think particularly all the people who died on the rig that day I think I knew what most what positions most of them were in, but I couldn't really tell you which ones they were of the crew members we met earlier in the film, and I think it could have been more impactful had we actually gotten to get to know them a little bit more. But the film was a visceral experience. It felt like it adhered pretty closely to the facts. It was fairly lean in its runtime. It didn't feel exploitative. It was angry, but not preachy. Oh, and the sound was fantastic, particularly the sound editing. Every aspect of that rig seemed like a living creature, you know, just groaning and roaring and popping. So I was shocked. I liked it a lot. Well, I, I, I kind of understand where both of you are coming from um, in your takes on this. I myself would have been shocked to like this if this film had come out a couple of years ago. And what I mean by that is I feel like I'd already seen this film when I saw Lone Survivor a few years ago because it's literally the exact same movie. The exact same structure as far as how the story sets up the characters in the beginning before shit hits the fan. You have Mark Wahlberg in the lead. You have Peter Berg depicting a story of heroism and a true life event. And how these guys are all there for each other to save one another's lives. It, it just felt so... Uh, like, I was watching this, and, and while I agree with you, Will, that the sound of the movie is phenomenal. I mean, like, really, really good. And, Alice, I agree with you, too, that there is definitely an emotional connection to this film. Uh, certainly, my audience was gasping and rooting for these characters to survive. And you could really feel that on a human level while watching this. I, I still just found myself going, you know, th this is it. This is all that it was. And part of that also, for me, had to do with... Will, you said before the film is very lean. It is. It moves pretty quickly. And it's kind of a detriment to the film because by the time it gets to the end and it's actually wrapping up and the film is over, I wanted there to be more. There's a whole other aspect to this story about 
BP trying to save the rig before it actually collapsed into the water, what that meant for the environment. But Peter Berg doesn't do that. Peter Berg instead focuses on the people that were actually on the rig during this disaster. But I don't think he does as good a job as he could have with it because to your point, Will, you're right in that some characters are set up well, some characters are not. And when things start really do go up in flames, you know, then I also get the sense that I don't really know who the, some of these people are. I get it. They're nice people. They've got everyday lives and everyday problems. But I didn't really quite connect with as many of them as I was hoping to. And I feel like if there was more time spent on that um, and more time also spent on the aftermath you know, we get this really great aftermath scene with Mark Wahlberg where he's a hit or miss actor, but he really goes for it in this one scene at the uh, tail end of the film here in a, in a hotel room with his wife. But other than those moments there, I I, I, I don't I'm, I'm, I was left a little unfulfilled by this film, I guess you could say. Well, it's just interesting what you're saying, though, Matt. Did you think that that in a way the the actors were playing almost like caricatures of certain roles. So Mark Wahlberg was the relatable dad that we're supposed yeah. to get behind. Yeah, Kurt yeah. Russell's the steely <laughs> commander, you know, that everyone's supposed to. But I agree, and I I didn't mind that, but I think so I can imagine some people not liking that, especially with uh, John Malkovich's character. Yes. Oh, he's such yeah. a sniveling weasel. <laughs> I hated his accent. I know he's going for Cajun. Oh, I wondered but... about it. <laughs> his accent was awful. Oh, my goodness. It was uh, pretty hysterical. I, I got over it, I would say, about a minute into it. But in that first minute, when he first opened his mouth, he started talking that very slow, troll accent. Uh, some members of my audience were laughing uh, unintentionally at it. And, I mean, that's just also because you cast a guy like John Malkovich in the role who in and of itself is kind of a caricature of himself in many ways, you know? So, I, I mean, he's a phenomenal actor, don't get me wrong, but John Malkovich, I think I think the only people that have ever, like, utilized him uh, <laughs> the way I the way I would love to use Malkovich is uh, Coen Brothers, I thought, did Malkovich so well in Burn After Reading. It was so self-aware and so hysterically funny and so dark. Uh, especially uh, after coming off of being John Malkovich. And I know he's got other great roles throughout his career, but he just strikes me as a very overly serious actor that when he plays very serious, it, it, it comes off as unintentionally funny unless if the film itself is self-aware. Am I making sense by saying this? I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, I think his role in, in, in uh, Deepwater Horizon, it was interesting. I don't think he was miscast or anything I just think he it was it was clear what what Peter Berg was doing with this was he is clearly setting up BP as this huge villain in the film and uh, John Malkovich becomes this you know like this caricature of BP as this kind of idiotic person who just he's just an idiot like he's he's a moron like throughout the whole film although I quite like that because maybe maybe it's very traditional to set the film up like that and kind of have your big villain and maybe some people that were involved in the real life disaster would say that it wasn't necessarily like that but I think if you're setting up a film like this and you do do it quite traditionally it, it works quite well um, because you have you know your characters in these neat little slots including someone like Mark Wahlberg, who is this, you know, amazing hero in the film. Um, and in in a sense, I think he was trying to maybe be respectful to those who, to the victims of the real-life disaster, um, you know, to the people themselves that, that, you know, sadly died in this horrible accident, rather than trying to maybe have it, have it more uh, morally ambiguous and maybe show the, the good side of BP or of maybe that it wasn't that cut and dry, you know? It's more simplistic, maybe. Um, yeah, and another thing I would point out is I definitely saw a lot of Michael Bayisms here as far as cut and dry black and white goes. You know, the, the American flag. The flag flapping, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, and then some of the action, as cool as it was, was a little incoherent. 
I will say, you know, there were shots, and it did add to an overall fact of disorientation, effect of disorientation, but there were definitely some moments I could not tell what was going on. Um, that being said, I will go back and say the spectacle was fantastic, all the more so because they actually set the damn oil rig on fire on set as opposed to... I mean, that's why this thing has a hundred sixty million budget. They literally burned down an oil rig they built, <laughs> which is insane. It wasn't CGI. That's that's crazy. Oh, I, you know, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so, I, I want to just go back to the experience of this, as far as when the oil rig does go up in flames, when the pressure does start to get to such a high amount that things just start flying everywhere. Uh, the glasses flying at people's faces. The corridors are just being blown apart. All of that, I thought, was incredibly effective. And I started to think to myself that we're about to get Peter Berg's version of Titanic in a way in showing the sinking of this great vessel and the death of it ultimately and seeing the chaos of these people trying to survive. Uh, I, I still have to just go back, though, to how much I felt that the film isn't setting out to do much. It, it doesn't feel overly ambitious. And, and, you know, we're talking about building a rig and si uh, setting it on fire. And while that sounds ambitious, maybe on a technical level, sure, but just on a story level, I, I don't know if they really set out to do as much as they could with this story. And that, that to me, was the most disappointing aspect here. You feel like it's too uh, superficial in that sense. I, I feel like it's a workmanlike film for workmanlike yeah. people that, you know, the everyday blue-collar person will respond to. That's what I thought too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially being here with the oil workers. You can just sense that it is, it's a blue-collar film for sure. Right. And as a result, it's not trying to talk down to them and it's also not trying to be too over their heads, I guess you could say. With, like, the science project explanation of exactly what happens in his job and stuff. little uh... Oh, yeah, they, they have to throw that <laughs> in there for the audience to understand how this stuff works if they're not used to this kind of work. I mean, you know, someone like myself who's never in a day studied this kind of stuff in his life, I, I, thought, I thought that scene was very helpful in providing an explanation, much in the way someone like Christopher Nolan attempted to explain uh, wormholes in uh, Interstellar. You know, it's you need scenes like that to get people up to speed so that this way, when the actual event does occur, uh, you know, it, we know exactly what's playing out and how it's playing out. Now, with that said, I will say that the 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 jargon in this movie, to some degree or another, I, I felt like there were plenty of times where these guys were talking to each other and I had no idea what they were saying, but surprisingly i wasn't necessarily taken out of the film by that i still found all of the um the science and the uh you know like just the everyday uh procedures that they were going through on the rig i still found all of that pretty compelling overall and i think a lot of that does have to do with these alice as you were saying earlier these caricatures yeah because we know which each character represents ultimately we know that john malkovich is the guy that wants them to drill quicker and he wants them to you know produce more for the wells so that they can get more money we know that kurt russell he cares about the safety of his workers he wins like a, a safety award at some point in the film i was i was laughing at that bit though you know where they they've got the oh that was so safety award. that was hilarious it was it was almost ironic wasn't it i thought that it was, was cheesy like I, i'm gonna be honest <laughs> having it win the safety is that true did it in fact win that's the safety? true Oh, this God. is actually true. Yeah, they do those safety awards apparently. Uh, so I've heard anyway. But that during they do that, that day, it's all for show. Maybe not quite as it played out in the film. Um, but yes, they do do things like that. I think where they have these ridiculous safety awards that are based on bizarre criteria that they can always win, basically. Uh, but it's it's ridiculous. I brought up Mark Wahlberg earlier. What what, what were your thoughts on uh, Mark Wahlberg in the film, Alice? Um. Well, I think he, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of Mark Wahlberg normally. I kind of, I guess he's just one of those actors that I have no opinion on uh, most of the time, but I don't think many people do. But he, uh, he, in this, I thought he was, he was very well cast. Um, I think it was very much a Mark Wahlberg performance. Like he can never not be himself. He's not like a blend into the scenery sort of actor. Like he is Mark Wahlberg. 
but even so, um, I think, I don't, I don't know, you could tell that he was given it 110, 110%, and, you know, I was watching some uh, behind-the-scenes stuff afterwards, and they did some crazy stuff, like, you know, they um, there's a scene in it where he gets set on fire for, like, a few seconds, and they, you know, they really did that, like, he did his own stunts and stuff, and they really threw fire on his back, and he was there, like, trying to pat the fire out and everything in real life on this rig that they'd made. And um, I guess I can respect him for that. And uh, watching him in the film, he wasn't a distraction. He wasn't awful. He didn't draw attention to himself as much as John Malkovich did. Um, and yeah, I just thought he was uh, overall he was good. Yeah, I think he was well cast. Yeah, I mean this was uh, this was Mark Wahlberg playing blue collar Mark Wahlberg. I mean we've seen it before, but I'm glad Mark Wahlberg was being in some well-received films. He wasn't the standout for me, but he was good enough. Who was the standout for you? Kurt Russell. I actually thought Kurt Russell, even though, you know, he's playing his typical tough guy, was really good. I thought the emotion he was showing there by the end, and particularly on the scene on the rig, the withering stare he gives to John Malkovich, and the tears you can see in his eyes and the quaking in his voice, I thought was really good. I thought it was the sole legitimately very good performance in that film all right all right so with that said then uh we're gonna pass it off to final thoughts and a grade out of 10 so alice we'll start with you do you have any final thoughts on deep water horizon and what grade would you give it okay i think i guess i'd give it uh, a seven out of ten um because i think yeah like when it got going i think it wasn't it's a hard film to really love within the first half an hour because, you know, it is generic in many ways. Uh, there are many elements that draw attention to themselves, like hairy, um, like heavy foreshadowing, like with the Coke can and the honey and everything, kind of makes you roll your eyes, you know, uh, with the BP awards and things like that. Um, but yeah, I just, I like the fact that even with all the jargon and everything, I totally agree that it's understandable. They summarize things quite nicely in it, all of the different elements. Um, but, and, but then, you know, when it reaches its big second half, I think it really comes into its own. And it, I just thought it was outstanding on a, uh, on a level of pure spectacle. It just, it really took me by surprise. You know, I was, I was pretty much shaking in my seat watching it, which doesn't happen very often considering how often I see things in the cinema, you know, of all, all different types of films. But I really, really got into it. So I think, yeah, I'd give it a solid 7 out of 10 on a purely on a pure level of the spectacle, I think. And Will? I'm also a solid 7 out of 10. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I had a lot of things I like to nitpick with it, um, but it was a good experience. I'm going to go with a 7 out of 10. Well, just so that I don't sound like the bad guy here, give me one nitpick you could think of. Oh, I told you. I mean, like, the uh, Malkovich's accent bothered me. Uh, it was on the nose in its opening build-up and stuff. I mean, as you said, it's not exactly... It, it, okay, so there's kind of cheesy with its uh, explanation of the Science Fair oil rig, the coincidence of them winning the safety award in the same day. I was like, come on. Uh, and I told you the lack of character development was a problem for me. That's what keeps it from being much better. Um, I can nitpick all those things. But I did think it was a pretty thrilling, visceral experience, ultimately. And I, of the fact-based movies this year, I definitely enjoyed it more than a Sully, for example. I will echo that statement. I think I did enjoy it a little bit more than Sully as well. I liked it more than Snowden, even. Yeah, so- I did as well. With that said, though, I have to grade it the same grade I gave those uh, films and... Uh, uh, or well, Snowden, I rated a little bit, er, a little lower, but I, I have to give it a six out of ten for me. I just feel that watching this movie, it, it had that same exact formula as Lone Survivor, that knocked it down a few pegs for me. John Malkovich was kind of just. It just felt off to me. It didn't feel like it was in the right movie. Um, And I did feel that he was miscast as a result. So that knocks it down. You've got this uneven uh, balancing act of 
the first part of the film where you're introducing us to these characters and then the second half of the movie where the rig goes up in flames and then they're trying to survive. But then once they all get off, spoiler alert, not really, it's a true story. And, well, and I also want to say all of them either, never spoiler alert. It's uh, it's like a movie just ends at that point. It, it ends, it's over, and you're left there with uh, the text coming up on the screen as, you know, as per usual with these films. And it's like, oh, okay. I, I, I just felt like there should have been more to this. And I felt like the people that did tragically die maybe deserved a little bit more as far as the fallout, the explanation behind why this uh, truly did happen. I mean, if it happened as depicted in the film, fine. But I feel like there's just there was just more to this story overall. So I'm giving it a 6 out of 10 overall. I'm still positive on the film. I just have a little bit more to complain about is really what it comes down to here. So with that said, uh, we're going to now talk about what are our top three favorite disaster films based on true life events and we're gonna say that in just a moment okay i'm counting one two three four five six seven eight nine ten you got it straight man everything okay everything's fine all right, everybody, so we just got finished talking about Deep Water Horizon, and now myself, Alice, and Will, we are going to be talking about our top three favorite disaster films based on true life events. Alice, you're the guest on the show. Why don't we start off with you here? Tell us what your number three is, and if you had any criteria for what you consider to be a disaster film based on true life events. Okay, uh, well... I did well. I I was gonna put Titanic as my third one, but then I felt like that was too standard. So I've actually gone with the 1958 version of Titanic, called A Night to Remember. Ooh. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's pretty interesting. Saw it once many many years ago. Haven't revisited it though. Mm, it's uh yeah, it's a British film. Um, it's very in many ways it's quite old fashioned um in in its setup. But I was re-watching some clips of it just today, and it uh, it kind of reminds me of Deepwater Horizon, actually. It's that very traditional, standard, you know, disaster movie setup. Um, and obviously it's based on a, a real-life event. Um, but I'm not sure what my criteria were exactly, but I just kind of went with, you know, yeah, I can't really explain it, just stuff that was, you know, real-life events that ended in disaster. So yeah, um, I picked this one as my third because um, I remember seeing it like, quite a few years ago. Um, obviously by this point I'd seen the uh, 90s version of Titanic like a billion times um, and I, I knew that inside out. But when I saw A Night to Remember, I just remember thinking it was kind of nice to see a version that wasn't a romance um, because like I, I love Titanic. Um, and I like that it has the romance element to it, but in some ways it takes away from the disaster itself, um, or it turns it into something else. Um, whereas A Night to Remember is much more straight to the point. It's it's about um, uh, it's it's more of an ensemble piece. It's about how it affected you know numerous groups of people, um, and it's it's got all those small elements in you know like the musicians that were playing as the uh, ship was sinking and the scrabbling for the lifeboats and everything um, and I, I enjoy it a lot um, and it, in fact it reminds me I actually saw years ago there was I think it was when my grandma like bought a new DVD player or something there was this free like test DVD that came with her machine and it was like um, a cartoon version of Titanic and I just remember because it was made for kids right at the at the end when they all get to lifeboats and everything everyone survives in the film because it was made for kids and I just remember like laughing at this as like a 10 year old and just thinking oh my goodness what an awful way to tell the story oh my so gosh I I mentioned that I have no idea what this version was called or anything it was ridiculous it was terrible but um I mentioned that because in A Night to Remember it's much more tragic and much more in keeping with the I think the 
the right tone and the way to tell that story. So yeah, that's that's my number three. Awesome. Well, criteria and what do you have for your number three? Uh, criteria, I think disasters can even be small disasters as long as they affect kind of an ensemble group of people. And yeah, I, I can't really give you a specific on what constitutes disaster. But for example, I'm going to put a movie that surprised me with just how enjoyable it was. Uh, Tony Scott's final film, I believe, Unstoppable, which yeah. on some definition isn't a is a disaster film. Take off right now, we get back on the main, we can chase it down in reverse. Hey, whoa, wait a minute. The only wait way to stop that kind of power, grab it by the tail, boom, gun in the opposite direction. We can't just chase down. If it goes down, we're going to be a wreck on a wreck. Doesn't matter. There's a good chance the derailer won't work. It's called a derailer for Christ. Train, like, that's what that they do. Size going that fast, it'll vaporize anything that gets in its way. They wouldn't use it if they didn't. They're wrong. All right, they're wrong. Are you in? Or are you out? Okay, you want to get yourself killed? You do it alone. Wait. If you're right and that derailer fails, what are the odds it makes it to Stanton? You saw the train. What do you think? It's not a deep film but it's just a lot of fun and it's a thrill ride like Deepwater Horizon it's got a fantastic sound mix it's got fun chemistry between uh, Chris Pine and Denzel and it's just I don't know I, I did a little research and they definitely took some liberties on that plot wise but I can't get over what an enjoyable unpretentious thrill ride it was while simultaneously being fairly respectful to the real life. Not tragedy, tragedy was averted, but disaster. I would say that what makes that film is its pacing. Oh, that yeah. film moves so well. So well edited, yeah. It is It is just a thrill ride. And the stakes feel very real, and Tony Scott does not lose sight of that in that film. Um, I remember walking out of the theater and not being disappointed by that movie at all. I don't really remember it all that well it's funny and ironic a train just went by me just now um but it's it's a film that you're right will it's not a deep film by any means but for what it was when it came out it's a very enjoyable film for sure uh for me uh criteria um honestly it was kind of like yours will um i just looked at it didn't have to be situations where somebody uh, tragically died or anything like that. This wasn't a, a list of tragedies. It was just simply a disaster and whether it was avoided or if it was something that um, was not able to be avoided and had to just simply be survived. Um, that's what was what was my criteria for this. And I also didn't want to necessarily pick the obvious choices, but um, unfortunately, two of my three are fairly obvious um and that that's going to start me off with my number three here and that is uh ron howard's film apollo 13. uh this is houston uh say again please houston we have a problem we have a main bus b undervolt we've got a lot of thruster What's activity here houston now? it just went offline oh there's another master alarm houston i'm checking a quad Christ, there was no repress valve maybe it's in quad we've C. got a computer restart i'm gonna reconfigure the rcs we've got a big light fire doesn't make any sense we've got multiple caution and warning houston we've got a reset restart all right i'm going to sds uh, apollo 13 is a film that back when it came out in 1995 i mean nobody had really ever seen a a, a space film uh, kind of like this i i feel very much like i mean obviously there have been space films before but the level of detail that went into this film as far as the science goes and the way that Ron Howard portrays these men in space with the clock ticking for their lives. The tension just felt so real. And uh, it won two Oscars for Best Film Editing and for its sound. And one thing that I really appreciate about this movie is how this disaster brought so many different parties together and how you can see everybody utilizing all of their talents and all of their strengths to save these men. It, it, it was just such a, it's one of those really, really good, feel good movies, what it comes down to, because it celebrates the people that are on the ground that 
Also, too, you got to give credit where credit's due here. They didn't have modern technology like we have today. It's unbelievable to see how much work these people have to go through uh, to just even solve some of the tiniest and also some of the biggest problems. Um, cast is awesome all around. Tom Hanks, you know, you got to mention Ed Harris. Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, Gary Sinise, man. Ah, I miss Gary Sinise. I want to see him in more stuff, damn it. But Apollo 13 is definitely a lot of fun and with a really terrific score by the late James Horner. I I really, really, really appreciate this film a lot. So that would be my number three here. Alice, what do you got in number two? Okay, uh, number two, I put uh, Everest, which I saw last... I think it was out last year. It was, um, yeah. It was, yeah. Did you guys see that one? Yeah, it's... Um, I yeah. missed that one. You didn't see it? Ah. Yeah. Well, um, it took me by surprise, actually, a, a bit like uh, Deepwater Horizon. I saw it in the in the cinema here in Aberdeen um, in 3D, which is unusual for me. I don't, I don't tend to see things in 3D. Um, but I thought it might be an interesting one to see if they can really get that depth that they're working with these days you know how a lot of 3d films are they're more about depth than having things popping out in your face now which i kind of like so um and i remember being very impressed with that actually how you really felt like the like the scale of the mountain and like how just the landscape you know it was it was amazing okay just stay right where you okay, are pull myself up. i'm gonna come out to you <sighs> Good, back. Okay. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Got it for you. Tie me in, Scott. Tie me in. Come and get me. One belay. Got it. I'll belay. Let's go. Right, I'm coming out to you. Back here I come, mate. Nice and easy. You're tied in, mate. I can't feel my hands. You're looking good. Grab me. Back, back, back. Grab me. Stay right where you are, mate. I can't pull right myself here. up. I can't pull myself up. Oh, I got you. You okay? There's no guarantees in the summit, I get it. But to get killed because I'm waiting in line like I'm in freaking Walmart. Um, and the story was, um, I think it was a story that took place, I don't know if it was in the 1980s or something. It was 1986, I think. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, something, uh, it was in, uh, it was in, where was it? Um, sorry, yeah, March 96, it says here. So I think that's right. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's another one where I guess maybe I just like films about um, people suffering. But <laughs> this one uh, was people really suffering. I mean, you've got um, uh, it was a cast of like Josh Brolin, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jason Clarke. And they end up uh, in a snowstorm on this mountain. And it's just, you can just feel like them freezing to death, basically. It's horrible. I remember just feeling like my, my limbs were going numb, you know, watching these poor guys stuck on this mountain. And um, it makes it worse as well that obviously when you're in the cinema, um, I don't know if they do this everywhere, but here they have these... Um, huge air conditioners that come on <laughs> like halfway through the film and they're just blasting this air conditioning as I was watching it I just remember thinking oh my god like I feel like I'm freezing to death along with these poor guys stuck <laughs> on the mountain um, so yes again maybe that's another one that's that's only good when you see it you know in theatres but um, on the big screen I think um, it's, a, it's another really great one with a really really awesome um, ensemble cast um, and it's, you know, it's loud, it's immersive, um, and I, I really think that 3D gave it the extra depth that it needed. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one a lot. I'll give a shout-out to Dario Marinelli's score in that, too. The uh, oh, the yeah. final track in that film played is everything's kind of concluding destroyed me, and I listened to it a lot. It's beautiful stream Great stuff. Work. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. You know, I totally agree. No, it's really good. Took me by surprise. All right. That's awesome. I, I got to check out that film at some point. I'm a, I, I really like Jason Clark a lot, and I know that he's the lead in this film. Is that correct? I, I believe so. Uh, he probably is classed as the lead. I would still say it's more of an ensemble, but yeah, he is. I think he, if you look at like the poster and everything, he's like at the forefront, so I believe he was at least marketed as the lead. I would say Brolin. It's, it's kind of Brolin's story, really, too, though. That's true. 
But at the same time, I mean, was was Jake Gyllenhaal a big part of that? Maybe he wasn't. Was no, he, side he only character? had like twenty minutes of screen time. Ah, uh, okay. I think yeah, he, his character doesn't have as much as the other two. So yeah. Alrighty. Well, number two. Uh, number two, I'm gonna say Juan Antonio Bayona's The Impossible. Oh, great choice. <laughs> I remember I first saw this film, and I think probably similar to uh, to your experience with Everest. I heard this one in state-of-the-art sound system. It was screening at AFI Fest at the uh, Chinese Theater in Los Angeles. So we got the, they were trying out a new speaker system where, depending on where the sound was coming from on screen, it would then subsequently come from different speakers in the room. It wasn't even surround sound. It was something else entirely. So when the wave would come, you would feel it move across the room, which is pretty crazy. Wow. But yeah, that film, particularly the first 40 minutes or so, is just gut-wrenching. I mean, you have the, um, this ominous, ominous buildup leading slowly to it. You know something horrible is going to happen. The scene where they're lighting lanterns and letting them go into the sky and they go over the ocean and you can hear the ocean sound almost like this churning beast. And then once the actual disaster strikes, of course, it is just visceral in the initial moments of Naomi Watts trying to survive the disaster. And then Naomi Watts, you know, she did get an Oscar nomination for the film, I would say deservedly. Her character wasn't written to do anything, really, but she, she gave such a visceral performance. And then I think Ewan McGregor, this is one of his most underrated performances. His breakdown on the phone scene is fantastic. Tom Holland kills it in this film. The ensemble's great. I feel like it loses steam a little bit in its second half, but it's still just a riveting ride and had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. Yeah, I really, really like this film. Some of the makeup work in this movie, too, to showcase the the wounds and the, just the effects of the disaster on the victims is some of the most harrowing, realistic, and just uncomfortable to watch makeup I've ever seen on film before. Um, I also have to agree that the performances are just outstanding all around. I'm really, really excited to see... Um, a Monster Calls, uh, which is his newest film that he has coming out this year. Good pick all around there. I really, really, really enjoyed this film. Um, from my number two, I was saying before that I have two obvious picks and one not-so-obvious pick. So I'm going to now list the not-so-obvious pick. I'm not even sure if you guys have ever seen this one before, but I'll be very pleasantly surprised if you have. There is a film in 1951... Uh, written directed by the great Billy Wilder. It's called Ace in the Hole, starring Kirk Douglas. Uh, yes. Has anyone seen this? <laughs> I've yes? seen it. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Great stuff. <laughs> oh, so this this is based on uh, uh, 1925, uh, just a crazy, crazy media frenzy about these uh, rescue attempts that were um, unfortunately unsuccessful. When this uh, explorer, his name was uh, Floyd Collins, he was trapped in a, a cave in uh, central uh, Kentucky. And the film follows um, uh, Kirk Douglas's character. He's a journalist who is ultimately prolonging the rescue attempts so that this way he can uh, ride this story out and get a big job and a big payday. And it's such a dark film oh my god is it so dark it's so cynical and i absolutely was just smacked across the face by this film when i first saw it because if you've ever seen any of uh billy wilder's other work i mean whatever it be um to, uh, like the, the lost weekend or uh sunset boulevard it, i would put it up there with one of his best efforts even just as far as the writing goes some some of the writing is, on this is it holds up to today. This could be, um, in my opinion, remade today with the exact same script and it wouldn't miss a beat at all. In fact, release this film back in theaters, Fathom Events. I will gladly pay money to go watch this movie again. Kirk Douglas, in my opinion, gives one of his all-time best performances here as this selfish reporter who's putting the life of this man um, underneath his own ambition. It, it is just so, so expertly well executed here. And it does bother you a little. Not enough to stop me. 
I'm on my way. And if it takes a deal with a crooked sheriff, that's all right with me. And if I have to fancy it up with an Indian curse and a broken hearted wife for real, that's all right, too. Not with me, it isn't. And not with a lot of others in this business. Phony, below-the-belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below-the-belt. Right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Human interest. You heard me phony. For all I know, there isn't even a Leo down there. Yes, there is. Tatum made sure of that. Look, I've waited a long time for my turn at bat. Now that they've pitched me a fat one, I'm gonna smack it right out of the ballpark. I cannot praise this film enough. A Alice, I, I, I'm so happy that you've seen this one. <laughs> no, absolutely. I've seen a ton of Billy Wilder films. I just think he's, ah, oh, he's so ahead of his time. Like, that, that level of cynicism that he has, like, in some of these films is just fantastic, you know? And like you say, they, they play as well today as they did, you know, back in the 50s and back in the 60s. Like, they're just, you know, they're just timeless. Um, and I think... I, well, my favourite Billy Wilder film is still The Apartment, um, but, I, but I think, yeah, in terms of um, this particular topic, I think Ace in the Hole is a fantastic choice, uh, and you're making me want to rewatch that, because I haven't seen it in a couple of years now, and I really, really enjoyed it when I saw it. Yeah, you've sold me on that, I'm going to watch it now. <laughs> <laughs> you have to find it. I believe it's. Uh, I think you can get it on Criterion Collection. I believe. I mean, I'm sure it's somewhere. Also, um, maybe on a streaming platform. I, I don't really know at, at this time, but I know Criterion definitely has it. It's it's one of my favorite Billy Wilder films for sure. I I cannot sing the praises of this movie enough. I really. I I, I just can't. It is so freaking good. I'm gonna go rewatch it this weekend now because of <laughs> we're all gonna be watching it now this weekend. <laughs> good recommendation <laughs> thank you and now for Alice your number one well Will already stole my number one <laughs> unfortunately because <laughs> my number one was the impossible oh that's fine uh, but uh, so should I just I'll just talk about it again uh, with my own thoughts I guess um, yeah, I, I saw this. It has been a while since I, I've seen it a couple of times, uh, but I I remember seeing it when it was first out in, I think it was uh, 2012 or something? Yeah, it was 2012. 2013? 2012, yeah. Uh, I saw it in, I was at university at the time, um, and I went to university at a place that had, um, they had an art cinema on site, which is really cool. So uh, they used to play like all sorts of art films, uh, all types of films, in these kind of um, really confined small theatres, you know, like where you go into the room and there's n nowhere near as many seats as you'd get in the, you know, the normal cinema. Uh, and I remember going to see The Impossible on one of those screens, um, but even on a smaller screen and in a more, more confined space, I can still remember just how effective that film was. I think it, even having seen the trailer and stuff before it, you really just, I, I didn't have a sense of how immersive it would be and how disturbing it would be. Um, and I, I just remember, uh, as, as you both uh, mentioned, Naomi Watts in that film was fantastic, like stand-up performance, I think, for me. Because um, she just, I mean, a lot of it is in the makeup. I mean, she is insanely battered and bruised and swollen and limping throughout that film which is horrible in itself but I will never ever forget that moment in the film where she's in uh in a hospital I think and uh she coughs up all this debris and uh like seaweed and blood oh yeah it's disgusting oh my god it's horrific isn't it like, I just, I'll never forget that. And whenever I think about this film, I always think about that scene and how much, how disturbing it was when I saw it. And, you know, the gasps from people in the audience because it just kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, and, yeah, she just kind of, she's I believe she's next to another woman who starts getting sick and then she starts throwing up this blood and all this awful stuff kind of comes out of her mouth. And I just remember thinking, like, for me personally, that really put it into perspective, what it was like to be in something like a tsunami, you know, where you're just hit with that great force and you go flying like that and you just end up with all this disgusting debris and stuff just going in your mouth and getting lodged in your in your throat and stuff. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like that is just the worst thing. I can't even imagine what it's like, you know, to go through that. Um, I feel so sick right now. 
<laughs> Sorry. Oh my goodness. Too much description. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think for me it is, um, it's a little bit sappy, but I, I can get over that. And I think films of that kind are always a little bit sappy because that's how they try and, you know, convey what it's like to go through such emotional turmoil like that. Um, during a disaster. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my number one choice. Alrighty. And, Will, what do you have in number one? So, I don't know if it fits necessarily the definition of a disaster film, but I would argue it does, although it's handled extremely respectfully. Paul Greengrass's United 93. Um, oh, wow. This is... Yeah, I... So it's when you were criticizing kind of the setup of Deepwater Horizon, I thought it was interesting because although unlike Lone Survivor and Deepwater Horizon, United 93 doesn't choose one single character to particularly emphasize, it is kind of the same setup and then here is what happened. But that film, you know, it is so docudrama-like. Oh God, it, it hits you hard. You don't really get to know any of the people that well, but at the same time, they all feel like real people, which I thought was so cool. And it just does admittedly feel triumphant by the end, and then just the silent cut to black when the film concludes is just... I saw that movie for the first time when I was young, I think back in 2006 when it came out, and it just punched me in the gut because it was so soon after 9-11. And it's still, I've rewatched it since then, fails to hit me every time. And so that's one, both for Greengrass's, you know, raw, on-the-ground, handheld direction. I think that's his best direction he's ever had, even maybe more than Born Ultimatum. Because of that, and because of the film's wonderful editing back and forth from the control tower, and the raw, emotional punch it packs, I have to go with that. This film is a film that I've seen once, and I... I, I still to this day have not been able to bring myself to watch it again because the ending to this film hit me, like you said, Will, on such a deep emotional level that I don't know if I can quite possibly go back to that feeling again, knowing full well what it has in store for me. I too saw it, I believe, not in 2006, but I think I saw it in like 2008 or nine, And it, it's all these years later, I... Maybe one day, maybe one day I'll, I'll have the courage to watch this film again. It's it's a it's so realistic in its depiction and it's a testament to Paul Greengrass's direction of this movie, which he was nominated for for actually the Oscar for best directing, wholly deserved here because the way that he depicts these events portrays these people that were in this situation. It, it, you're right. It feels like it's something. It feels like it, we we are actually there at the time of the event itself, and that I think is the most harrowing aspect of this film. Uh, a really, really, really inspiring choice as number one. Did you guys both think that it was? I don't know. I, I just I like to hear your opinion as you're obviously both Americans. Uh, did you guys think it was a respectful way to depict that? Because I did. Uh, but I obviously watched it as an outsider, um, to some extent. Um, Absolutely. Do you think it was the first real, like, respectful 9-11 film? 100%. Yes, very much so. That's and I mean, yeah. it had the support of... I mean, the people who were in the control tower that day played themselves, and a lot of the cast members were real fa family members of people who died on the plane that day. I think it was handled extremely well, so... Yeah, Greengrass, from what I understand, got the cooperation of all the families involved for the making of the film. So, um, it's 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 a very underrated movie. Uh, when you look back, actually, I don't think a lot of people are willing so much to talk about it because of how it actually makes them feel. But it is one of the most moving films I've ever seen, hands down. And now I'm going to reveal my number one, which is totally like the exact opposite uh, of uh, what Will has chosen here and what you have uh, you have chosen as the impossible. You guys both chose very visceral, very immersive films and so is this film but it's not as good of a film but I have to place it at number one just for the sheer spectacle alone and that is the second half of Titanic. <laughs> not the first <laughs> half, just, just the second half. 
<laughs> like what James Cameron is able to, to do with Titanic still to this day is one of the most all comprehensive uh, biggest in terms of scale I I, I just I, I've ever seen I, I and you know how they talk about oh they just don't make them like this anymore they really, really don't make them like this anymore. And a lot of that just has to do with the way that the Hollywood system is, um, the Hollywood system is set out today as far as like when we get three-hour films now, we don't get three-hour films on this scale. Uh, we used to get them back in the golden age of Hollywood, it seemed like, all the time with these epic films like Lawrence of Arabia. But, you know, think about other than like the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy, there's not been that many films that match Titanic in terms of just its sheer scale and size and for what it actually set out to accomplish. And I got to give credit to James Cameron. If you watch like the behind the scenes documentaries on the making of the film, he was very, very respectful to getting it as right as he possibly could as far as how the ship itself actually sank. And I have to admire him for portraying that. And I think that as a result, that second half of that film, from the time it hits that iceberg till the end of the movie itself, you know, they could release the film, you know, Titanic Volume 1, Titanic Volume 2, Quentin Tarantino style, and Volume 2 would be one of the best movies ever made. Uh, with the combination of both parts, though, and its three hour runtime, Titanic is an uneven film, for sure. Uh, there's definitely some problems with its screenplay and the way that Cameron kind of forces a lot of the situations with the characters, but that final sinking sequence is perfect to me in almost every single conceivable way. So, uh, do you guys agree? Do you guys disagree with that? What do you guys think about uh, Titanic? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The final hour and a half is... It, I guess it's a little shorter than that, but, yeah, it's unbelievable and the set design in that is so spectacular i don't know if it deserved all 11 of those oscars but it did not deserve it's, anything it's a bit excessive isn't it <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly it, it is a bit excessive but i mean it it definitely deserved a lot of those that's for sure like th that production too you know no it was like when avatar came out and became another success although one that was not nearly as influential everyone thought both of those films would tank and they always doubted cameron and the fact that he managed to make huge successes out of both of them. And like Titanic, you know, he got he and the crew got poisoned with PCP on the set. And he literally just vomited it up and then kept filming. People said his eyes were bloodshot and he was terrifying. Like, what? Oh my gosh. It's such an impressive achievement. Interesting you mentioned Avatar because I think there's a... I think you see a difference in James Cameron with both of those, though. I think back in... when You know, when you watch Titanic... It still feels more raw and more like he wasn't still wasn't sure what he was doing or he was taking some risks with it and he was just kind of seeing where it would go. Whereas with Avatar, I just I wasn't a fan of that film at all. I just felt like it was so calculated, like he was kind of drunk off this power that he had in the industry, you know, where he was like, I know what I'm doing. I, I've got, I, you know, he thinks that he's got these amazing themes that he's working with. And he just it just felt more big headed to me. I, I think Titanic is more. It's just more raw. Titanic's more a better film, too, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. It's much better. All righty. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Those were our top three favorite disaster films based on true life events. Um, Alice, thank you very much for being on the show with us today. Uh, before we go, where can everybody find you on the internet moving forward? Yes, uh, you can find me on, well, I use a great site called Letterboxd, if anyone uses that, which is I for do. film lovers. Uh, you can find me, uh, I think it's just letterboxd.com forward slash Alice Bishop, uh, if you want to find me on there. And uh, and then my Twitter is just twitter.com forward slash Alice Bishop 28. And yeah, that's where you can find me. Cool. And, well, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. You can also find some of my blog posts on uh, nextbestpicture.com as well as my own WordPress.wmavity that Matt will probably have a link for. 
So yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And I am Matt Neglia. You can find me on nextbestpicture.com. All of the other social media networks at Next Best Picture. Thank you everyone for listening. We will see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.